This uh, retreat would be incomplete if we didn't speak about Mary. So this morning, we will speak about Our Lady. And the, uh, the title that I gave for this talk is Mary, the one who waited for God. In the Father, and the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, Amen. Mary, we come to you this day as your children. We ask you, Mary, that you would continue to intercede for us. That you would teach us how to wait and how to trust. But most importantly, how to believe in your Son and to follow him as he is leading us in our lives. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So reading from the Gospel of Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We all know that gospel very well, right? The gospel of the Annunciation. And in many ways, it's a, it's a very joyful, hope-filled gospel. We hear it oftentimes right before Christmas. And it just automatically triggers, you know, the, the joy and the peace of the Christmas season. John Paul II once said that the Annunciation is the most important moment in human history. Because it's really at that moment when Our Lady says yes 
that the Word becomes flesh and enters our world in the womb of Mary. But I would also say that this gospel or this reality of the Annunciation is also a very sobering gospel. Because if you listen very closely, you can hear that the cross is very nearby. Those last words, the angel departed from her. While this message is being revealed to Mary, she is blessed with the presence of the angel Gabriel, perhaps to convince her that she's not crazy, she's not hallucinating. But then what happens? The angel leaves. The one who comes to announce the good news is now gone. And Mary is alone. I think it's important for us that we really try to understand the situation that our, our Lady is in. Because I think some, sometimes in our, in our piety, we can overlook the reality that God has placed Mary in. Most biblical scholars say that Our Lady is between the ages of 13 and 15 years old during the time of the Annunciation. Mary is betrothed to Joseph, which means she's legally married to him, but not complete yet. And now Mary is pregnant. In my own sort of thoughts and in my own sort of meditation, sometimes I wonder, would it be fair to assume that as Jesus is, is literally growing inside Mary and her people in her neighborhood and her towns begin to notice this, is it fair to assume that Mary was talked about? That maybe she was the subject of, of gossip? You know, I have a, I have a classmate. He's a, he's a diocesan priest, but we were in the seminary together. And he's probably one of my best friends. And he, after we got ordained, he was sent to Rome to get a doctorate degree in dogma. So he is like, I call him Father Smarty. Right? <laughs> and I, he's like my, my own personal uh, CDF. Anytime I have a question about something, I call him and he just knows the answer automatically. It's great to have one of those. Um, keeps me out of heresy. <laughs> but one day I was talking with him. I mean, I was asking him this question. I said, you know, is it, would it, 
be fair to assume that maybe that Mary was talked about, that she was the subject of gossip because of the fact that she's pregnant, she's not married, uh, living with Joseph. And he said, you know, he said, obviously we don't know for sure, but he said, I think it would be safe to assume that, or at least that is a real possibility. But then he said something very interesting to me. He said, it's funny you ask that question, because just a week prior before I had called him and asked him this question, he said there was this prominent theologian who came to Rome and was giving a series of talks on Mary. And, and this theologian said in one of his talks, and this was just his own purely speculative thinking, he said, Perhaps one of the reasons why Jesus had such compassion for prostitutes was because his mother could have been considered one by people. When I heard that, I was like, wow. Now, obviously, we don't know that for sure, but that's a possibility. And so this is the reality in which Our Lady is in. What are her options at this point? What are our options before, or before those moments of life that are confusing, that are open to misunderstanding by other people? that might seem utterly hopeless. There are perhaps many possibilities, but Mary chooses really the only possibility that each one of us has, and that is to wait for God. To wait for God to provide light, insight, understanding, maybe even vindication and direction. Because as Our Lady says in her Magnificat, his mercy is on those who fear him. In other words, those who trust in him. You know, most of us live our lives based upon the what ifs of life. What if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? And in a way, those are real questions, and we can't ignore them. But nor can we become obsessed by them. I think it's safe to say that the what-ifs of our life 
if we spend too much time with them, they are guaranteed to make us crazy. Because it becomes then a life whose foundation is based upon fear. And what does St. John tell us in the New Testament? Perfect love casts out fear. Or perfect trust, perfect faith. You know, in my home growing up, um, my father is a Vietnam veteran. So he was shot and wounded in the Vietnam War. And because of that, he was never really ever able to get a good job. And so I grew up in my home around, there was a lot of anxiety. I would constantly overhear my parents talking about money. How are we going to afford uh, this? How are we going to afford that? A lot of what ifs. And, you know, without realizing it, I probably didn't realize this until I was a teenager, but I, in a, in a very real way, inhaled a lot of that anxiety. And if my parents would have known that, they would have had a heart attack. It was the last thing in the world they wanted. But kids are very clever. And there was a part of me that, as I became a teenager, I grew up with very little hope for the future. I thought I would be sort of condemned because of my circumstances and situations. Now, the ironic thing is, I now take a vow of poverty. <laughs> That's one way to get rid of that fear. <laughs> But that was God's direct intervention. Our Lady lived, I would say, not by the what-ifs of life, but by what I like to call the what-is of life. Or in other words, what is real. And for Mary, what was real or what is real is first and foremost God's love, God's mercy, and God's fatherly care and providence. What does waiting for God look like for us? You know, it's interesting, waiting for God is not a passive thing. It doesn't mean, you know, going home and sitting on the couch, watching TV all day, eating potato chips, saying, oh, well, God will take care of everything. That's not at all what waiting for God means. You know, you might have heard this story or this joke, but there's, there's two guys stranded on an island. And one guy spends all night praying. And in the morning, he hears God saying, 
Today, I myself will come and rescue you. And so he tells his friend, God spoke to me and said, today he himself is going to come to rescue me. And so the other guy's like, okay, well, any, any moment now, we're ready to get off this island. And as, it, as the day goes on, it becomes late afternoon, all of a sudden the helicopter comes. And they see these two guys stranded. And so they stop and they, they throw a rope down. And the guy who wasn't praying, he goes up first. And so he yells down to his, his friend, he's like, aren't you going to come? And the guy says, no, God promised me he was going to come and get me today. And the guy is in the top of the helicopter, he's like, are you serious? And he's like, yes, don't worry, I'll be fine. So he's like, okay, I'm out of here. So he leaves. A week later, the guy on the island dies. And he comes to heaven, and he meets Jesus, and he says, I thought you said you were going to come and get me. And Jesus says to him, you fool, who do you think was riding the helicopter? <laughs> What's the lesson? The lesson is we must pay attention to our life, to the circumstances, and to the reality of our life. Because this is where God is. You know, there are, uh, there are seven capital sins, right? I think, this is again my own theory, I think there should be an eighth one included. And do you know what the eighth capital sin I think should be? Daydreaming. Daydreaming is one of the most deadliest things in the spiritual life, just in life in general, because it takes us out of reality where God is. Mark Twain once said, I have lived a long life and done many things, most of which have never happened. Isn't that true? In our minds, we think this person's saying this about us. I did this wrong, or this person hates me. The majority of which have never happened. We allow ourselves to be taken out of reality. So waiting on God means living our real lives with hope, trust, and confidence in God. As St. Paul says, in everything God works for good for those who love him. This is why waiting for God is actually an active disposition. It requires 100% faith, 100% trust, and 100% confidence in God as we live our life in the circumstances and the situations that are part of our life. 
You know, I heard a story a couple of months ago, and it was, it was a story about a, a large corporation, and they were, they were merging with another corporation, and so they fired, or they had to lay off, about 100 of their employees. And as you can imagine, obviously these are 100 people who have families, who have lives, who have bills to pay, and now all of a sudden, here they are without a job. And the CEO of this company, his best friend growing up was a pastor, or is a pastor. And so he invited his friend, the pastor, to come in to speak with the people he just laid off. And so this pastor comes into this, this room, and there's all of these hundred people who have just been laid off. So as you can imagine, it's a pretty intense situation. And the first thing that this pastor says to these people who just lost their jobs, he says to them, congratulations. He says, in a year from now, if you trust God, you will be in a better place than where you are right now. I would never say that to someone who just lost their job. <laughs> that pastor has courage. But notice what he didn't say. He did not say, if you trust God, you'll have a job in a year from now that pays better, that has more vacation time, more benefits, you'll be appreciated more by people, respected, loved, all of those things. He never said that. He said, if you trust God, you'll be in a better place than where you are right now. Because God is in control. And it is Mary, of course, who is the best example. She is an icon of what waiting on God looks like. And I'd just like to take us through a... Um, a little quick biblical tour of Mary's life, just to show how her entire life is one of waiting on God. You know, after the Annunciation, what happens to Mary? Does she retreat into a cave? Does she throw herself uh, a pity party? Does she go into hiding and think, this, how am I going to do this? Mary does the exact opposite. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who finds herself in a similar predicament. And the scripture says she doesn't just go there for a weekend to say, you know, look, Elizabeth, I know this is weird, but don't worry, God's in control. The scriptures tell us that she stayed with her for three months to serve her, to console her, to encourage her. Is it reasonable to assume that during that time, maybe at night or in the morning when, when Mary's praying, and as she literally can feel Jesus growing in her womb, is it reasonable for her, or is it reasonable to assume 
that at least at some time she asked herself, what is happening to me? God, what are you doing? I'm 14 years old. And how does Mary respond? With a text message. No. <laughs> Mary responds by waiting, by trusting, and ultimately by surrendering herself to God. The wedding at Cana, Jesus and Mary and the disciples are at a wedding. And the wine runs out. And Mary says to Jesus, simply, they have no wine. A simple request made without anxiety, without fear, without worry. Mary goes to the waiters and she says, do whatever he tells you. In other words, she's telling them, wait, trust, and surrender to him. Because he, not you, is in control. The three years of Jesus' public ministry, Mary is oftentimes with Jesus as he preaches, as he heals, as he performs miracles, as one day the crowds adore him and praise him, and the next day they ridicule him and reject him. So what's the big deal about that? Well, Mary, as St. Augustine says, before she's even mother, is disciple. She's the first disciple. And while everyone else is trying to figure out who Jesus is, while people are saying he's a prophet, while people are saying he's a devil, Mary knows exactly who her son is, and she never gets in his way. She never tries to tell him what to do or how to do it. She simply waits, she trusts, and she surrenders herself every moment to him. In Jesus' passion, and this is brought out so beautifully in the movie, The Passion, but Mary is walking with Jesus while everyone else runs away. While Jesus is before Pilate, while Jesus is scourged, while Jesus is crowned with thorns, while all the first priests and bishops, with the exception of John, have ran away and pretty much denied Jesus, Mary is there the whole time. And what is she doing there? She's waiting. Yes, she's suffering, no doubt. But she's also trusting. At Calvary, the scripture says, standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother. Perhaps here in this moment of darkness, there was never a time 
when Mary felt so helpless, when the temptation to despair was so high. I know you all know this as mothers. Don't you feel the most helpless when your children are sick and there's absolutely nothing you can do? You would oftentimes want to trade roles if you could. And that is Mary at the cross, utterly helpless. Yet she chooses to trust. She chooses to, to surrender and to wait. On Easter Sunday, and again, this is just my own meditation here, but I think it's an interesting question. Was Mary surprised on Easter Sunday? My own theory is that she was not. The disciples were shocked because they were not waiting on God. Mary had been waiting on Him her whole life. And my own meditation is that when Mary heard the news of the resurrection, she was not surprised that Jesus was alive, but more overcome with wonder and awe that this was the way, this was the method that God would choose to redeem the world. Because Mary was holding that promise of the Annunciation her whole life through, that He would be the Savior of the world. And only the fullness of that revelation of the Annunciation, that only became completely accessible, understandable to her on Easter Sunday. Mary was never given a playbook at the Annunciation that says, okay, it's going to look like this. This is going to happen. This is going to look bad, but don't worry. Instead of a playbook, Mary has to trust and wait on God. Because for Mary, God was not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be embraced. And so what is Our Lady trying to teach us? She's trying to teach us, I believe, to trust God. Why? Because God is unfolding in you, around you. Do we have eyes to see, ears to hear? But most importantly, a heart to believe. This is why I, I believe that a contemplative posture in prayer is so important. And what does that mean? It means that we come to God open, receptive, 
trusting. You know, it's so funny. Sometimes people think when they run out of things to say to God, their prayer is done. I like to say when you run out of things to say to God, your prayer has just begun. Because now you are free to listen. Now you are free to receive. Now you are free to be led beyond what you could never lead yourself to. Mary embodies this perfectly. She is this icon of what waiting and trusting in God looks like. And what she is teaching us and reminding us of, I believe, is that this patient, trustful, silent waiting upon God is our only option. It is our only option before life. Mary wants to show us. She wants to teach us. Not by abandoning your life, not by abandoning your responsibilities or the reality in which God has placed you, but simply by living life, living your circumstances with hope, with confidence, with trust, but primarily with God's strength in your life. Sisters, if we can do that, or if we are at least open to that, we will be overwhelmed by how faithful and how near God is to us. Amen.